it may have escaped your attention, uh, although it's been mentioned several times already this morning, uh, but some people got married on Friday. Uh, it was very nice. We watched um, the service, enjoyed it very much. Um, what frustrated me, to be honest, was not the service, which I, I loved, um, and, you know, I've still got the flag up on my wall and so on and so forth. But what frustrated me was about the six weeks before the service uh, when, if you wanted to find out anything that was going on in the world, television news was of absolutely no use to you because all that was on television news for the past six weeks was Jenny Bond standing outside Westminster Abbey basically saying, there's nothing happening here, but, but give it a few weeks and uh, this is going to be really exciting. Um, I, I found the whole build-up completely ridiculous and frustrating. And, and I noticed this morning when I looked at the news uh, that, that they've got a bit of a problem now. They've, they've suddenly got to re-engage with the whole of the rest of the world outside Westminster Abbey and it seems like they've forgotten about that. And the big question, and I guess it's, it's a big question after any big event, is, oh well, what happens now? What happens next? And uh, of course, sadly for the world's media, um, in the case of Wills and Kate, uh, what happens next is that the man goes back to work and cracks on with his life. So uh, that's not very interesting, but they still managed to make it the top headline on the BBC website this morning. All of which is a roundabout way of leading up to say, we've been looking over the last few weeks at, at the end of Matthew's Gospel and at the last few hours of Jesus' life, leading up to his death and then his resurrection. Uh, I hope the build-up to that has not been tedious in any way. And it's pretty easy, I guess, the week after Easter, to think, what next? We heard um, a couple of weeks ago from Peter Comont in one of those uh, moments which makes you think that you're either in the presence of a theological genius or something else, that you could almost draw up the whole of the biblical storyline in three points. Well, five points, as he put it. Creation, some stuff happened. The cross and resurrection of Jesus, some more stuff happened. New creation. And uh, although I think there's perhaps slightly more that you could draw out of Scripture than that. Um, <laughs> it does give, it, give you a, a, a kind of an insight into where we're at at the end of Matthew's Gospel. The, the decisive thing has happened. Everything that the whole of the Old Testament pointed up to has happened. Jesus has died for sins and has been raised to life. Now what? And actually, you get the impression when you read through the Gospels and through the New Testament that some of the disciples felt pretty similarly. Just a, a couple of instances that sprang to my mind. If you look at Acts 1, don't do it now, but if you look at Acts 1, the disciples are talking with the risen Jesus and they say to him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they're looking around and they're saying, well, if the decisive thing has happened, if Jesus the Messiah has been raised from the dead, it's a bit odd that we look around and everything looks exactly the same. Romans still in control. What next? Or in a completely different way, the end of John's Gospel, John 21, uh, where the disciples are together, it seems to be a little while after Jesus' resurrection, and Simon Peter says, I think I'm going to go fishing. 
And that's not a, a momentary diversion. These guys were professional fishermen before they started following Jesus. And what seems to be going on in their brains is that, okay, Jesus has risen. Now what do we do? I guess we'll go back to the nets. Go back to daily business. If everything has changed, if Easter has happened, why does it all look the same? And if everything is completed, if the decisive thing has been done in God's plan for the world, why is history rumbling on? And these verses at the end of Matthew's Gospel are his answer. And his answer is, the rest of history, notice that it ends with, until the end of the age. So, the whole of the rest of history is about the church and its mission. And I want to unpack that under, under two headings. Firstly, Jesus' commission to the church. What does Jesus tell the church to do? What are the instructions for Jesus' community? And secondly, Jesus' promises to the church. What does Jesus say he's going to do for the church? So that's where we're going. Okay? Great. Jesus' commission to the church. What does Jesus say? Well, they're pretty familiar words, I guess, if, like me, you've been in church since you were born. Um, not actually in church, not incessantly since I was born, but coming to church since you were born. Pretty familiar words. Let's go through them bit by bit. Jesus says... Go. Jesus says go. He says go. Now, uh, that's, uh, it could be go to a different place. It could be go to a whole different nation. It's often used that way and applied that way, and I think that's right. I think the main thing, though, is go out into the world. Go. Don't, don't stay in a little huddle with your 11 disciples. Go out into the world. Get out there. Don't just stay in church. Go out there, he says, to make disciples. Disciples, people who follow. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross and follow me. So, the church is told to go and make the sorts of followers of Jesus who will give up their lives for him. How are they to do that? Well, firstly, they're to do it everywhere, from every nation. And they're to do it by baptising people in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. When we read about baptism in the New Testament, it's very often shorthand for that whole uh, sort of network of events that happens when somebody becomes a Christian. When they turn from their sin, put faith in Jesus as the one who saves, and then enter the church by submitting to being baptised in water and receive the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, do that. That's the first step in making disciples. And the second step is to teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So not just getting people through the door and into the church, but teaching them to live as Christians. Teaching them to live as those who've taken up their cross. It's pretty simple actually when you put it like that, isn't it? But that is Jesus' mission for the church until the end of the age. That is what we're meant to be about that's what we're meant to be doing. Now, I won't deny there's a whole load of other stuff that the church does and should do. But this is the heartbeat of it. This is the absolute centre of what Jesus wants his people to be doing. Going into the world, making disciples of all nations, 
by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. In other words, the church is given the task of ensuring that there are people from every nation on earth who have heard about what has been done for them at the cross and in the, in the resurrection of Christ, have entered into the church and are living as if this stuff is true and real. And the task actually corresponds to the fact that it follows on from Jesus' accomplishment. If everything is done, if everything is changed, in other words, if Easter, then all that remains is the announcing of the good news. All that's left is that people hear about it and say yes and come into the community of Jesus and follow him and feel the reality of it and live it out. If we understand it right, and I should say, I've heard and preached sermons on this text which I think have gone badly wrong. But if we understand it right, this is really great. This is a really joyful task. It's like uh, <laughs> the, uh, the bizarre image sprang into my mind that imagine if, if, uh, if human beings hibernated. Imagine they did. Imagine, um, and I've often thought this would be a great idea, if we all just shut ourselves up in our houses at winter, pulled the shutters closed and just stayed there and waited for the sun to come out. Be a great uh, and joyful task to be the guy running through the streets saying, Spring has come. Open up the shutters. Get outside. It's warm again. The winter is over. You no longer need to look so pasty and pale unless you're a ginger, in which case that's just your lot in life. Great news. Or, or, or I don't know, like, like if you're a doctor kind of delivering the all clear. This is, this is the task of taking fantastic news and telling it to people. It's not a bad job, is it? But, and let's be honest with ourselves, that's not mostly the way we experience it, I would guess. If you're anything at all like me, more often than not, this seems like a really hard task. A massive job. Sometimes we feel like, well, we live in a secular age now. The tide's turned against us. We're faced out there with huge indifference. Nobody cares about this message. To be honest, they mostly don't even care enough to persecute us for preaching it anymore. We're a tiny minority. You shouldn't quote me on this because I'm quoting Kate who thinks she may have heard Melvin Bragg say something on the TV along the lines of we live in an age where secularism has the microphone and atheism has the megaphone. Melvin Bragg didn't say it. I did. Um, and, and that makes it difficult, doesn't it? Maybe when we get together we feel the joy of it. 
we sing, Christ is risen. And we feel the joy of it. The world has changed, we think. Nothing's the same anymore. But it doesn't take very long, does it, for that enthusiasm and joy to be pretty thoroughly damped down and blunted by encounters with an indifferent world and with people who just don't want to know about it, who won't take it seriously. Of course, uh, these 11 disciples, as they gather together on the mountain in Galilee, face a pretty similar situation in a lot of ways. They lived in an age of religious pluralism, when it was fine to practice whatever religion you liked, so long as you didn't bother anybody else with it. They lived in an age of political religion, where you could worship whatever private gods you wanted, so long as you were prepared to offer the odd sacrifice to Caesar. And if we feel like a tiny minority, there are more believers in this room than there were on that mountain and therefore in the entire world at this point. They were a really tiny minority. Eleven guys setting out to make disciples of all nations. Must have seemed an enormous task. I mean, if it seems huge to us, must have seemed like an insurmountable task to them. But, says Matthew, that is what the whole of history, from the point of Jesus' resurrection to his coming again to the end of the age, is all about. So how is it going to happen? Perhaps, I guess we could ask, how did it happen? How is it the case that there are disciples all over the world following Jesus. How is it that these 11 guys turn the world upside down? And how is it that we can confidently carry on with that task? How is that going to happen realistically? Well, let me move on to Jesus' promises to the church. Because that is where this task is grounded. We can only do this because of what Jesus says to us. And he says two things. Firstly, he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, I remember thinking, and still think a little bit, that when you look through the whole of the rest of the Bible and the whole of the rest of the New Testament, that's actually a, a, a weird thing for Jesus to say. The rest of the New Testament makes enormous claims for Jesus. It says, everything was made through him and for him. John's Gospel says that without him, nothing was made that has been made. If you read the rest of the New Testament, you kind of get the idea, didn't Jesus always from eternity, have complete authority over everything because he made it. Yeah? And the answer is, yes, absolutely. So what does he mean when he says, on this mountain in Galilee, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me now. Now something's changed. Now I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Well, he's talking about a particular type of authority. The Old Testament background... um, you might want to turn to it, but it's in a slightly obscure part of the Old Testament, so you might not be able to find it in a hurry, is in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision 
and a lot of it is bizarre and involves large monsters. Um, but then he has this really clear vision. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, this is Daniel 7.13, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What Daniel foresaw was a remarkable thing. One like a son of man, he says, a, a human being, being raised up into the presence of God himself and being given an everlasting kingdom so that people from all nations should worship him. I wonder what Daniel thought as he was writing this down. I wonder if some of the, some of the language around it, he says he saw one like a son of man. And I wonder if he's, he's hedging a bit because he's thinking, how can it be that there can be a human being coming to God and being given authority to be worshipped by all nations? How can that be right? And we know from our perspective in the New Testament that he's talking about Jesus. God's become man. The Son of Man being led triumphantly into God's presence, having done his work and being given authority to establish an everlasting kingdom of worshippers. That's the authority that Jesus is claiming in Matthew 28. If you like, this is Easter authority. It's the authority of the one who has borne the punishment for the sins of humanity to proclaim full forgiveness. It's the one, it's the authority of the one who has died and been raised to call people out of spiritual death and into life. It's the authority of the rejected but vindicated king of Israel to call people from all nations, not only Israel but the Gentiles as well, to come into his kingdom. The authority of the one who has been shown in power to be the unique Son of God, to call men and women into relationship with God as Father. And just as death could not keep him, and the weight of sin could not ultimately hold him down, so now nothing and nobody is outside the sway of his authority. Not in heaven, or on earth. We need to get this into our minds. On the basis of his death and resurrection, Jesus has absolute authority to make disciples of all nations. And that is true regardless of whether I feel like I'm in a tiny minority or whether I feel like there's no way any of my friends or colleagues are going to want to hear. It's not a coincidence that there's a therefore in Jesus' words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples.
Jesus is saying to his original disciples and by implication to us because I have this authority because I have died for sins and been raised again because therefore there is nothing in heaven or earth which is outside my sway go and make disciples and that is how those eleven guys could head out into a world of indifference and preach the message that Jesus was raised and that that has changed everything. I've been asking myself the question this week, how does it change my office that Jesus has authority based on his sacrificial death and glorious resurrection to call people to himself to become disciples? How does it change how I feel about walking into my office on a Monday morning or a Tuesday morning? How, how does it change that place and my relationships with those people? How is it going to change your staff room at school? How is it going to change your lecture theatre? That Jesus has been raised and therefore has absolute authority to gather people into his kingdom. It's a serious question because if the answer is um, it doesn't change it very much, I can only assume that that means that we don't actually believe it. Yeah? If I can go into my office and live in exactly the same way as if Jesus did not have authority in heaven and earth, then that means that basically I'm just disbelieving his authority. And that means I'm disbelieving his resurrection. And that's a problem. If Christ is raised, he has authority in heaven and earth. If he has authority in heaven and earth, that has to change my office. And wherever you find yourself over the course of the week, I was thinking, this is going to enable me to speak this week. He's knowing that Jesus has absolute authority in heaven and on earth to call disciples to himself. Is that going to enable me to speak to the people I work with this week about him? If I understand that I have a delegated authority from the risen Christ to go and make disciples, is that going to loosen my mouth, loosen my tongue? Is it going to change my tone of voice when I do speak? Is it going to make me a little bit less hesitant, a little bit less defensive? I don't know about you, but so often when I do actually pluck up the courage to speak to somebody about Jesus, the way it comes out is something like, uh, look, I, I believe that uh, Jesus rose from the dead. I realise you think that's ridiculous. I wouldn't expect you to believe it. Um, sorry I said anything. I'll go make some coffee. He has all authority in heaven and on earth to call disciples. So why am I so hesitant and so stumbling and so lacking in faith?
Will it change my hope? Will I expect that as I try to talk to people about Christ, as I try to introduce them to the, the good news of what has happened, will I expect that something will happen? Will I expect that the objective truth of Christ's resurrection will meet with an answer in this person's life as they turn to him and come to new spiritual life? Because again, so often, even when I sound confident when I'm talking to people about Jesus, if I'm honest, I don't expect any change. Is it going to change my, my actions? I was thinking about it. What sort of authority is this? It's the authority of the king who was crucified for his people. It's servant authority. It's not kind of overbearing, lording it over you, shoving it in your face authority. How is that going to change the way that I approach my task of making disciples? I'm addressing all those questions to myself because I feel the need of hearing them and being challenged to answer them. I hope that you will take them and apply them to your own hearts as well. And let me put a caveat in here. If at the moment your response to those questions is, I feel guilty because I have not carried out this task as I should have done. My goal here is not to leave you looking back over what you haven't done and feeling bad about it. Any more than I think Jesus stands on the mountain and says, kind of noticing that you all ran away when uh, I was being arrested there. I think that my task standing here is to say, let's look ahead to this week and let's realise that in this week, in every day of this week, in every circumstance where you find yourself and in every relationship and in every conversation that you find yourself in, Jesus has absolute and total authority to call people to himself and he has sent you as a member of his church to make disciples and look when we get to next week and you look back on this week and you think didn't really do it feel bad feel guilty let's not load ourselves down with that either but let's go into the next week with the knowledge that Jesus has absolute authority and therefore we can go confidently. But there's a second promise. And in many ways, in, in almost every way, a more wonderful one. Having showed them that he has authority, and therefore he is sending them into the world, Jesus says to his disciples, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's saying to them, you're not just being sent by my authority. I am going with you with my authority. And again, that makes the world of difference. There's a, a big difference. Um, I hope that this weekend of all weekends I can get away with drawing on some, some royal related illustrations. 
But there's a massive difference, isn't there, between announcing a message from the Queen. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I have a message from the Queen. I don't, but I was just illustrating. There's a massive difference between announcing a message from the Queen and announcing the Queen. Ladies and gentlemen, Her Majesty the Queen. That was disappointing. But if she were here, and if she had come in the door, it makes a difference. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples and by implication to us is, when you go out into the world with the task that I've given you to call people into the community, to call people to put their faith in me, you're not just bringing a message from a distant king. I am right there with you. I am right there with you. And notice how he seriously underlines it. Surely I am with you. Always. And just in case you didn't get what that means. To the very end of the age. Sometimes I think we uh, fall into the trap of thinking that things used to be better in the olden days. In the olden days, people were more willing to listen. Uh, In the olden days, people uh, had greater Bible knowledge. In the olden days, uh, the church just had more influence. Some of that is definitely true. But frankly, when it comes to our task of going out to make disciples, it's all completely irrelevant. Surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age, says Jesus. And I'm with you with all of that authority in heaven and on earth on the basis of my death and resurrection offer forgiveness and to call people to live for me. I'm going to ask a question. It would be great if you could um, respond honestly. I won't judge and hopefully the people around you won't either. Do you think that this is the task that Jesus has given to you as part of his church? I get a couple of nods. I do too. Which raises the question for me, why on earth am I not doing it? Now, I don't want to turn us into a bunch of zealots who can't have any sort of conversation which doesn't immediately turn to something supernatural. I don't want to turn us into people who can't just be good friends to people without continually badgering them about God. I don't want that. But I do want us to be people who are really confidently prepared to say when the time is right and when the circumstances are right, Jesus is risen. Not just like that, because out of context that means nothing. But you know what I mean. To communicate the good news that Jesus is risen, sins can be forgiven, everything is changed. Why am I not that person? Why are we not that community? I can only suspect that it's because we do not believe, firstly, that Jesus has the authority to call people to himself. And secondly, that Jesus is with us as we try to do that. And I think it's because 
we look at the task, we look at the world around us, instead of looking to the king who sends us. Look, if I look out there at the world around me, if I look at East Oxford, if I look at my office, everything is extremely unpromising. Yeah? People have no interest. They don't care. Some people are openly hostile. Other people, you think, they've had such trauma in their lives, I just can't see them ever coming to God. It is not promising out there. Which is why I think Jesus gathers the disciples together on this mountaintop first and says, Look at me. I'm risen from the dead. I have absolute authority to call disciples. And I'm sending you to do it in my presence, in my name, with my power and authority. I want to leave you just with Easter again. Let me do this one more time. Christ is risen. Right. So, this week, tomorrow, will he still be risen then? Will he be risen on Tuesday? Will he be risen in my office? So, let's Go and make disciples. Let's go. Amen.